life, if we were to set some, some goals in our life and some SMART goals, and I ask you to prayerfully consider to create some SMART goals in your life. An intellectual goal is one of them. A physical goal is the other. Y'all still exercising, eating right? Yeah, I know. I didn't make you day just then, did I? But anyway, an intellectual goal, a spiritual goal, a relational goal, and then a spiritual goal. So those are some goals that you can incorporate into your life so that you can have a new you this new year so that your new you can look a whole lot more like Jesus in 2021 than it did in 2020. Y'all with me? All right. And then last week, we talked about spiritual discernment. And we were in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we saw in chapter 5 that if we want a new you this new year, we're to be more of a spiritually discerning person. And we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the Bible tells us we're to test all things, we're to embrace the truth of God's word, we're to reject falsehood, we're to love his word. Not only should we embrace his word, but we're to love his word, and then we're to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to be talking about getting back to the basics. Uh, I, I love, um, hey, the Packers won yesterday. I actually watched that whole game. Man, it was, I like the Packers. They're one of my favorite sports teams. And, and Vince Lombardi years ago, y'all probably have heard this, heard this little story before about Vince Lombardi. But he brought his men into the locker room one day, and he, and he picks up a football, and he reminds them, gentlemen, this is a football. So, um, so it's important for even people like the Packers and those that play for them, play for Coach Lombardi years ago, to, to be reminded that, these are the fundamentals, and what a fundamental that was, and to show them a, a football. So we're going to look at the fundamentals, if you will, this morning. We're going to go back to the basics. So if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me all the way to the very first book of your Bibles, and we're going to be, Bible rather, and we're going to be looking in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And I know what you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, three chapters? Yeah, uh, it's going to be a, a different message today. Normally what I love to do is to take a portion of God's Word and preach that particular passage. Today, I'm going to be taking several portions of God's Word from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to be looking at it as, as a whole, if you will, will, as we look at the fundamentals going back to the basics. Would you agree with me that fundamentals are important? I mean, it's important for us to go back to the basics, whether you're building a house, whether you're flying an airplane or coaching a team, you better know the essentials. You need to go back to the basics. And, and it's important in a lot of areas in our life. And it's even important, Shauna, you're talking about the medical field. It's even important back in the medical field. Uh, doctors and trauma units came up with the basics of A, B's, and C's of trauma. And if you're not in the medical world like I'm not, you have to be educated about this. And I found this pretty interesting. The ABCs of trauma is airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and then exposure. I share that with you because I want to tell you the story before we get into the message and, and say stories are kind of cool. Uh, if, if you think I might tell too many of them, just let me say this. Uh, Jesus told stories to communicate the truth. And that's the whole purpose of preachers like me that share stories. Uh, it helps us to communicate the truth because you may not remember the text I'm in, but if you remember the story, hopefully that story will remind you of the text that I'm in. Anyway, so, um, so anyway, this particular patient was rushed to the emergency room with some pretty severe trauma. She had a leg injury that was below the knee that was just really just gruesome. It was a D. It was a disability. And when she went to the emergency room, that trauma was just so awesome to see. Not only was it awesome to see, it was awful to see that those in the emergency room tending to her immediately thought of D. They were thinking of her disability. And the lead doctor had to remind them, no, 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 we, we need to check for A. 
while, while the injury she's got below her knee is gruesome and severe and is definitely needing of our attention, she's got something worse, far more worse. She's not breathing. How many of you would agree that's the number one issue we need to take care of first? So they, they looked at, A, the imminent threat wasn't her fracture. She couldn't breathe. So they began to enable her to breathe. They assisted her breathing. They got her some IVs to help her. And then they got some circulation going. And then when all of the A's and the B's and the C's were taken care of, then they went to the D. They went to her disability. She, they went to that severe leg trauma that she had. I share that with you because even the most experienced physicians need to be reminded every now and then of the basics. And in like manner, so does the church. I love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But every now and then, even churches like ours and even churches like us need to be reminded of the basics. We are entering into a season, I think, in our culture and in our country. Uh, We're entering a period of what I call moral emergency. And if we don't take care of the basics, the fundamentals of our faith, I don't see how we can survive spiritually. So we got to grasp what the Bible says. So we're going back to the basics. And, and the Bible says in 1 John 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So we're back in Genesis, right? We're going back to the fundamentals. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So the church has got to get the basics right. We got to accept the fundamentals. And I think if we accept the basic truths of the Bible correctly, if we, if we grasp hold of what we read here in Genesis, I think it will pave the way for you and for me to be not only a new you, new year uh, in this year, it would allow us to confront the attacks that not only will we experience personally, but maybe even corporately here in the church. So I want to go back to Genesis, and I want to share with you four foundational principles that I hope will help you be a new year, or new you rather, this new year. Y'all with me? Y'all know what I'm saying even if I say it backwards, right? All right, give me some grace. So anyway, so let's, let's look at what these, these principles are. Here's the first one. We've we got to grasp this, and that is that we are created by God, and because all of us are created by God, we're ultimately accountable to him, and that's not what you often hear in this world. What we normally hear in the world and what even our school children have heard before and what you probably have heard in, in school as well is that we are the result of random evolution. And then what people will say is that billions and billions of years ago, a cataclysmic event took place, the Big Bang, and that resulted in this complex universe that you and I live in. And by just a freak of nature, if you will, a lightning bolt struck a massive goo. And from that lightning bolt that struck a massive goo, a one-cell amoeba came to be. And that one-cell amoeba is the source of all of life. That's what evolution would have you to believe. Now, evolution is... They might can explain a lot of things, at least they think they can, but they cannot explain how nothing became matter. They can't explain how matter became life. They cannot explain how life became increasingly complex. They just say, well, just add a billion of years to it. And, and then they think that if you just add all these years to it, then you can maybe explain a few things. That's why Norman Geisler, who's a great Christian apologist, now I don't know about you, but whenever I used to hear the word Christian apologist, I'm thinking, what's he apologizing for? But no, that, that word apologist means that he's a defender of the faith. So, so we're defenders of the faith as well. So, but Norman Geisler wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I love the title. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's the name of the book that he wrote. It's, it's worth your read. And in that book, he says, it takes less faith to believe in the beginning God than in the beginning where we're just a free acts, free random acts of nature. <laughs> 
Now, it's, it's certainly not my intent to get involved in all the complexities of evolution, but it is my intent to urge you and me to use our God-given common sense that he's given us. Man, what happened to common sense in this day and age, right? But to use the God-given common sense that he's given us and to come to our conclusions about our origins based on God's word. We're not the result of just random chance. It's deliberate design. You know, one of the places I, I, I like to go, 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 I like to travel, and one of the places I, I haven't been to yet, but I look forward to going to one day is this place. And, and not necessarily because I want to go to Mount Rushmore. You know, y'all know who those people are, right? Uh, Washington, Jefferson, Elliott, uh, you know, Lincoln. Boy, y'all are really not with me. Y'all wake up, punch the person next to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, I know, that's lame, lame, lame. Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln. Uh, you know, if I were to go to Mount Rushmore, um, you know, do I, would I go to see that monument? Yeah, that, that's something else. But, but I really just would love to go to South Dakota, North, see, you know, see the Black Hills and all that stuff. But if you're there and you're looking at that monument, you know, don't do this. Don't hit a stranger. You can do it to your neighbor. But, you know, if you don't, don't just tap a stranger and say, huh, I, I wonder, did, did a man do that? Did it take a man years to carve this out of the rock? Or did that just by chance happen by weathering? Don't do that. I love you enough to say don't, don't do that. Uh, that's obviously by design there, by, by deliberate design. It didn't take thousands of years of weathering for that to happen. A man did that. You know, God gifted a person to carve that out of the stone. <laughs> We're not here just because of some random, you know, freak acts of nature. We're here by deliberate design. But let me ask you what's more complex. Something like that? which is complex, or something like this. All right, everybody go, ah, yeah, ain't that the cutest little thing? (laughs) Just a cute little baby there. I mean, what's more complex? Something carved out of stone or something like that? Something that God created, eyes to see, ears to hear, a nose that can smell, a mouth that can taste. Hmm. How can anyone look at that and say, that's just random? How can anyone look at that and say millions of years of of evolution? You know, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We read over in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. People are just without excuse. God has given us ample and ample evidence to know that there's a deliberate design. There's a deliberate creator who's designed all of this at his own pleasure and his own will. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us how God created humans, all right? And what we read in Genesis 2 verse 7 is that God formed the man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man, mankind became a living creature. You're not here by accident. You are here because a designer, a creator designed you, and he knows you, and he loves you. And if he designed you and if he created you, that ought to tell you that he wants to be in a relationship with you. You may not think people think highly of you. May I tell you who does? The Lord. The Lord does. And there again, he is a God that loves you. In fact, David wrote over in Psalms 139, verse 13, these words, For you form, God, you form my inward parts. You, you knitted me together. 
in my mother's womb. Now, here's the difficult part of this first principle that we're created by God. And because we're created by God, we are ultimately accountable to him. If we really do accept that, and if we really do believe that, the difficult part for many people, even in the church, is this. If we really believe that first principle, the difficult part is that God, our designer, our creator, the lover of our soul, sets guidelines for how we're to live our life here on this earth. The Bible says over in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. So notice from the beginning, God sets parameters. He loves us, right? But from the very beginning, God sets parameters for how he is most prized creation ought to live. So he sets the parameters around men's, he sets parameters around my freedom and around your freedom so that we might have the best life possible here on this side of heaven. So we're all created with the freedom of the will. We can choose either to obey God. We can choose either to disobey God. God says, if you obey, if you obey me, you're going to have a blessed life. It's not going to be devoid of problems because we live on this side of eternity, right? But he says, you're going to have a blessed life if you obey me, if you live your life within my guidelines. But if you don't obey me, well, you know. So no matter how much authority you might think you have now, whether you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, you're still a person under the authority of God and his word. And everyone will answer to him. If you're my age and older... You probably have heard of the New England Primer. How many of you have ever heard of the New England Primer? All right, either y'all have not heard of it, or I'm going blind, or you don't think you can raise your hand in a Baptist church. So let me tell you about the New England Primer. For over 200 years, that was the textbook for American school children. It was first published in the 18th century. There's a section of that textbook that school children all across America would study and read called the Shorter Catechism. And it's in that textbook that little boys and girls for over 200 years in America would would learn. And the very first question in that catechism, you say, is that Baptist? (laughs) It's it's good, but here's, here's the first question. What is the chief in demand? That's the first question little boys and girls were asked. And every little boy and girl that studied and that wanted to apply this to to their heart, they wanted to make their teachers and their parents happy, would answer that question this way. The chief end of man is to to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. By the way, that hadn't changed. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So for years and years and years and years, that's what little boys and girls recited in in their education. But not anymore. We've taken God so far out of our schools that now what our school children hear is that the primary purpose is not for you to enjoy God and to glorify him forever, but instead to to glorify yourself. You know, it's all about you, self-gratification, be true to yourself, do what comes naturally. And the result, we see it in our culture today. There's chaos. There's confusion. There's anarchy. There's insecurity. There's an old preacher. I like old preachers. I'm going to be one one day. I hope I'll like myself then. (laughs) But J. Vernon McGee, great old preacher from years ago, once said that God designed and directs his universe. God designs and he directs this universe. And frankly, if you don't like how God's running the universe, go out and start your own. I like that. Trey liked it. 
I don't think any of the rest of you did, but Trey liked that. So, so anyway, th- just know that's the first basic truth that we need to grasp. If you want to be spiritually discerning, we're embracing the truth of God's Word. We love God's Word, and that is that we're created by God, and we're ultimately accountable to Him. Here's principle number two. So that's principle number one. Here's principle number two. We are contaminated by Adam's fall, and because every single one of us is contaminated by Adam's fall, every single one of us naturally gravitate to evil. So as you're looking at Genesis, we're in chapter two now, and the end of chapter two tells us how God created woman. And what was her name, church? Eve. Yeah, thank you very much. I know you knew that. Um, So her name was Eve, and the Bible said that God brought Adam and Eve together, and God formed the first marriage ceremony. Hmm. So look there with me in verse 21 of of chapter 2. So here's how it happens. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice this was not God's idea, or man's idea. This was God's idea. Marriage is his institution. It's the first thing he instituted upon the earth. It's the invention of God, not of man. So God, because he invented marriage, established guidelines for marriage. And we read about that here in these first couple of chapters in Genesis. So I know you got your Bibles open, so look there in what chapter 3. And we'll basically be in chapter 3 for the rest of the message here. Chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Y'all see that? And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, there's a lot of people that in this day and age should no longer believe in in Satan. There's a lot of people in our culture today, maybe even people you work with, people even in your family, that no longer believe in a being called the devil. We've become too sophisticated, right? Who believes in that anymore, right? I think that's just one of the most clever ploys of Satan to have us doubting that he really does exist. Um, y'all, y'all ought to know by now, John, I love college football. And, um, and one of the mascots for the Arizona State was the Sun Devils. And their mascot for years, they just redesigned it, it literally looked like the face of a cartoonish face of Walt Disney. And if you watch college football, y'all know what I'm talking about. It, was, it looked like a cartoonish face of Walt Disney, and he was smiling and carrying a pitchfork. Uh, can I tell you something? The devil's no cartoon. He's evil. And he's the complete polar opposite of the Lord. He hates you. You say, well, I'm a good person. I, I, he, he hates you. And the same people that say we're too sophisticated to believe in a devil or in a Satan are the ones that ask themselves, why is there so much evil in the world? Go figure. It's because there's a Satan. That's why there's so much evil in the world. Jesus believed in Satan. And from the beginning, Jesus believed in Satan. Jesus said from the beginning that Satan is a murderer. From the beginning, our Lord Jesus said that Satan is a thief who, whose whole desire, his whole MO is, is to steal, kill, and destroy. From the beginning, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. So the book of Genesis, it doesn't tell you everything you need to know, right? None of the Bible does, but it tells us everything we need to know to put our faith in Jesus. Y'all with me? 
But Genesis doesn't tell us about the origin of, of Satan, but it introduces us to the reality of Satan. And it says here in Genesis 3 that the serpent was more crafty. What does that tell you about Satan? He is crafty. And it doesn't mean he likes to go to A.C. Moore, okay? He's crafty. And, and he possessed in the garden the serpent. So evidently, in the garden, this serpent wasn't something that we would see today like, like I would and run from. Evidently, in the garden, the serpent was a sight to see, maybe one of the most impressive of all the creatures that God had made. But Satan somehow possessed this, this, um, this animal so that he could visibly communicate with Eve. And this is what he began to do. He began to have her question God's word. Here's what he said. Has God really said you not to eat of the trees in the garden? It's like somebody saying to you, do you really believe in all of God's word? Surely you don't believe that. Man, you've been to college, you know. Surely you don't believe everything in God's word because, you know, who believes in all of it? Surely some of it's just a myth. See, Satan would have us question the authority of God's word. So here's what the woman said. Here's what Eve said in verse 2. She said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, or you'll die. So notice that Satan has succeeded in, in, in just two things here. He, he, basically, more than anything, he's gotten her to, <laughs> to focus on what she's not to do. He's getting her to focus on what she, she's not to do, and he really succeeds in that. So we see here in verses 4 through 5 that the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit from this tree, your eyes will be open." And then you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Notice his tactics here. He has you question God's word. He has you deny God's word. And then he reverses God's word. And can I tell you something? He does the same thing today. I mean, he really, really does. <laughs> and I could give you examples, but, but I'm not going to do that because when we were having our men's meeting, I was reminding one of our leaders, you know, I'm not going to tell you his name, but Tom Bone, you know, stood up. He was talking. And, Tom, and I was telling Tom, hey, we got to finish because it's 9 o'clock. And Tom says, you wait, 11 o'clock, I'm standing up pointing to my watch. I love you, Tom, wherever you are. He's doing security today. But Satan does the same thing today. He has us question God's word, deny God's word, and then he wants us to reverse God's word. Look at verse 6 if your Bibles are still open here in chapter 3. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate and then she gave some to her poor, defenseless husband who was with her, and he ate. <laughs> now, I'm having fun with that, all right? So Satan told them a half-truth. Eat of this fruit, and you'll know evil. And they ate of it, and it left a bitter, bitter taste. The Bible says in verse 7 that the eyes of both Adam and Eve were open. And they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. For the first time, Adam and Eve were uncomfortable in their own skin. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, that There are many things of which a wise man might wish to be ignorant. And I would submit to you that at this point, Adam and Eve were wishing they were ignorant to knowing evil. Look at verse 8. The Bible says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God said, you know, 
Remember, God said, if you sin, you're going to die. And for Adam and Eve at this point, did they die physically? No, but the death of their innocence took place right then and there. Not only did they not feel comfortable in their own skin, they didn't even feel comfortable in the presence of God. So we read in verses 9 through 12 these words, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I'm at verse 11 of chapter 3. And, and God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? Hey, God knows that they were, God knows, all right, because he's God. He's given them a chance to come clean here, to come clean here. And we see in verse 12 that Adam said, the woman whom you gave me, and that's how I read it, that woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So here's what Adam's doing, because we've all played this game. It's called the blame game. Adam's pointing to Eve, Eve points to the serpent, and the serpent can't point to anybody because they don't have any hands, right? That's an old preacher joke, but I like it. I'm glad I got to say that today. But basically, she's saying, the devil made me do it. So in front of the beginning, people like our forefathers, Adam and Eve, have been rationalizing their sin, and they blame somebody else for it. And you hear people jokingly say stuff like this, but you wonder if they're being some, being serious. But you hear people say like this, and I'm just going to have fun with this because I want to have fun right, right this. But you hear people say stuff like this. Well, if you had my mother-in-law, you have a drinking problem too. Ha, 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 yeah. Or you hear somebody say, well, if you had to coach those unruly kids in T-ball or something like that, you might say a few colorful words as well. Can I remind It's just a game, by the way, just a game. Or you might hear people say, well, man, the government's got so much regulations, so many red tapes with, with what I try to do to make a living. You can't help but to cheat. So everybody's, you know, a blame game, rationalizing everything. The basic principle, again, is that every single one of us have been contaminated by Adam's sin. Therefore, we all have a proclivity to evil. And I know what you're thinking. Surely not. Not maybe, the, maybe that person. Not me. Surely not the church. Hey, remember what I said a few minutes ago? I love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most fights in church... Don't take place over doctrine. Most fights in church take place over preferences. I don't like the music. Preacher's not wearing a suit. So on and so forth. Y'all know what I mean. Most fights in church isn't over doctrine but over preferences. So just as a baby can be born addicted to crack cocaine or inherit certain things from their parents, we inherit something called sin from ours. Here's what David said. David said in Psalms 51, Surely, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The point is that every single one of us are created in the image of God, and there is something inside of us we want to do right, but we're polluted by sin. It's almost like there's a silver war going on inside of us. One of the foundational differences between Darwinian evolution and biblical creation is this. Darwinian evolution teaches that in a primitive state, we're we're worse off, but we get better. And if the environment is just right, man, we'll be perfect. And if you're a Star Trek fan, that's the premise of Star Trek, all right? We're going to evolve. We're going to get better. But biblical creation teaches that we were created perfect. And Adam and Eve sinned. And ever since then, mankind has stumbled from the Lord spiritually. And we're getting worse. You say, are we really? Take a look around. Jim Collins wrote a book a couple of years ago, From Good to Great. I think humanity in our culture has gone from... From, from good to, to worse. In fact, it got so bad 
here that we read in Genesis a couple of chapters later that God purged the earth for mankind except for one family, Noah's family, and he did it with water. The Bible tells us he's going to do it again, but this time it's going to be by fire. And yet there are some people that believe, or they don't believe rather, in the reality of evil because people are genuinely good. <laughs> and, 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 and people say in parenting, for example, let me just give you some examples of how people just don't believe in the reality of evil because everybody's good. You know, in parenting, you've heard people say, well, our boys are angels. And you've been around those boys, and you know good and well those boys aren't angels. <laughs> but some parents believe our boys are angels. <laughs> and then you got, you, you see it in education too. Teachers are told, and bless, bless your hearts for those of you in, in education, but teachers are told, and they've been told for years now, don't discipline those children that you've got. You know, you'll hurt their ego. You'll lower their self-esteem. I remember the day my second grade school teacher, Sarah Hartley, by the way, one of my devotionals that I use each day is a book that my second grade school teacher gave to her best friend, Pearl Williams, and I've got it. And it's just it's a blessing to me to read what Sarah has written in the devotional and what my friend Pearl Williams wrote in that devotional as well. Now I'm writing in it, so it's kind of cool. But I can remember my second grade school teacher took students that misbehaved back behind the wall where we hung our coats and paddling the daylights out of people. I never wanted that. I was, just, I was an angel in second grade. I want y'all to know that. In fifth grade, my teacher, Miss Lambat, she had her paddle on the wall. She referred to Pedro often. I was so scared of Pedro, I didn't go to Taco Bell for I don't know how long. But, but anyway, I mean, we see it in education. Don't destroy their ego. Don't hurt their self-esteem. You see it in foreign policy. All these politicians in Washington say, oh, just trusting the goodness of people. Really? And, and, you, and you, say, you see politicians saying, just show good faith in countries like Iran. And they're not going to develop nuclear weapons and blow Israel off the face of the earth. They said they would. So we see it in parenting, foreign policy, education. We see it with economic ideas. We see people saying, if you just redistribute wealth and practice socialism, all the poor people in the world will be so grateful and they'll work hard even if they don't have to and all the rich people in the world will be, won't be greedy anymore and everybody will live happily ever after. Can I tell you what that is? That's called a dream. But where we really see the sin nature of man is in ourselves. Paul wrote in Romans, 7.18, for I know that, that good itself does not dwell in me. Now, can I remind you who wrote that? Paul. <laughs> for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. So, so for you and for me to have a new you this new year, understand that we're all contaminated by sin. In the same way that I inherited my hair color and so on and so forth from my parents, we all inherit, myself included, a sin nature from, from Adam. Y'all with me? Say amen if you are. Tom, I might go over 11 o'clock, but, but that's all right. We're not coming back tonight. All right. Let, let, me, let me move on. Here's principle number three. We're all cursed by sin and we're eternally condemned already. God pronounced a curse on this world because of Adam's fall. And God said to the serpent in verse 14 of chapter 3, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There again, the serpent had to be one of the most impressive creatures in all of God's creation. And now it's cursed to slither on the ground. And then God pronounced a curse on Satan. We read in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall, you shall, you know, deliver a death blow 
to, his, to the head. We've got that verse. That's, if, you, if there's verses in Genesis you need to memorize, mark in your Bible, Genesis 1, 1 is the first. Genesis 3.15 ought to be the second. Because right there in Genesis 3.15, that is a veiled prophecy of the coming Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You're going to bruise, he shall bruise your head, but, but you're going to bruise his heel. <laughs> It's a veiled prophecy that from the descendant will come Jesus who will destroy Satan. And then God pronounces, pronounces rather a curse on the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband's, what some Bible texts say, but, but in my text today, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then God pronounces the curse on Adam. We see that in verses 17 and following. And he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Adam's going to have to work. And it's not going to be easy, and it won't be pleasant. The Bible says there's going to be thorns and thistles. There will be earthquakes. There will be tsunamis. Hey, do we see all that taking place today? Absolutely. We see droughts. We see floods. We see diseases. We see accidents. It's all because of the fall. It's all because of mankind's deliberate choice to sin. So the Bible says that all of creation is groaning as a woman in childbirth. That's how much our creation is out of sync all because man chose to sin. So this third basic principle, we're cursed by sin and we're eternally condemned already. I know what you're thinking. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I thought God was a God of love. I thought he was a God of mercy. He would never condemn anyone to death. But what people don't understand, however, is how horrible the consequences of sin are and how holy our God is. Adam's Disobedience contaminated everything. You know, on, um, when the Titanic, Titanic hit the iceberg on April the 14th, 1912, uh, it immediately began to take on water, and everyone on that ship was going to die if they didn't get off that ship in the next two hours and 45 minutes, or 40 minutes, rather. If they didn't get off that ship onto a lifeboat, it didn't matter how good of a swimmer they were. It didn't matter how much they could withstand the cold. It didn't matter how much they could even endure that, that cold, cold water of the North Atlantic. It didn't matter how much they enjoyed the band playing near my God to thee. They were going to die if they didn't get on that lifeboat. And here's what Satan tells us today. No, no, no. He's a God of love. Yeah, he's a holy God, but, but his love trumps his holiness. And then Satan will say stuff like, you know, just eat right and exercise. You'll live a good life. You'll probably live a long life. Ultimately, everybody's going to win in the end. Ultimately, everybody's going to go to heaven. Can I tell you what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I tell you, Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then a couple of verses later, you know these, John 3, 17 and following, Jesus concludes his conversation by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So we are under a curse of sin. We're, we're condemned already, but can I tell you something? There's good news. Y'all ready for some good news? Say amen if you are. All right, so here's the good news. Principle number four. We have only one hope, and it's in the shed blood of Jesus. And by the way, he shed his blood for you and for me. So, so there's two verses that hint of our hope of a coming Savior. The first is in Genesis 3.15. The second is here, verse 21. And the Bible says there in verse 21 of chapter 3 that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. That God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin, and he, and he clothed them. You know, they, they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, but it wasn't sufficient, so, so an animal was slain. And clothes were made from the death of an animal that shed its blood. The first mention of death in the Bible is right there. Where a sacrifice was slain. You know, we read over in Hebrews 9 verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, say it with me, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no what? There's no forgiveness of sins. When you read through the Old Testament over and over and over again, God required the Jewish people to kill an animal. That animal had to be flawless. It had to be as perfect as perfect could be. And he sprinkled the blood of that animal on the altar there at the tabernacle, or you would put it over the doorpost of your homes there during Passover. But the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient to take away the sin forever. So it's almost as if God was conditioning them that without the shedding of blood, there can be no Remission of sins. Y'all remember the story of Ivan Pavlov and Pavlov's dog? Let's go back to psychology in college. <laughs> Ivan Pavlov would ring a bell and then he would feed his dog. He'd ring the bell, feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog. Y'all get it? Ring the bell, feed the dog. Yeah, ring the bell, feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog. And then if he just rang the bell, guess what would happen to the dog? He would begin to salivate because he thought food was coming, right? So throughout the Old Testament, it's like God was conditioning his people to know that there has to be a sacrifice, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And then, oh, here in the New Testament, John the Baptist comes along, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away what? The sin of the world. And just before he died, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said to his disciples there in the upper room, This is now the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I share that with you because only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus claimed to be God and he proved it. Only Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He fulfilled all the law's demands. Only Jesus could be an expression of God's love for us and yet at the same time, God's justice and his punishment for sin. Only Jesus died an atoning death. And when he died on the cross, don't think it was a martyr's death. Jesus said, I laid my own life down. It's my own volition. It's my own choice. I lay it down in my own accord. So it was an atoning death. And the Bible says that God laid upon Jesus the inequity, the sin of us all. Your sins and my sins included. So when Jesus was on the cross, all of our sins, past, present, and future, he took upon himself so that you and me can be as white as snow. That's why the Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. <laughs> Only Jesus came back from the grave. Amen? Only Jesus can 
can give us resurrection life. Only Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Only Jesus can empower you to live with the Holy Spirit in your life to overcome the temptations of this world. Only Jesus can create within you a new creation. That's why he gave us, his disciples, this command. Hmm. There we go. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And, And that's the basic task of the church. And if the church... If the church ever forgets that, can I tell you what we're just doing? We're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Jesus said, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give you eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm almost finished, summarizes this whole lesson. Here's what it says. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ we shall all be made alive. Let me ask you to bow your head, every head bowed and every eye closed, and we'll close our service today. But um, Father in heaven, will you help us embrace the truth that you are our creator and that ultimately every single person, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place today, listening to us today on the, uh, over the internet, everybody on the face of the earth is accountable to you for how we live. Lord, thank you that in the beginning, not only did you create the world, you created us and you created us to be in a relationship with you. Help us to understand then that the only way for us to be right with you is for us to be right with Jesus and to acknowledge that Jesus is our pure and perfect in our complete sacrifice and that by believing in him, we might have eternal life now and in heaven to come. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that's never made you their Lord and their Savior, if they've never acknowledged you as that in their life, that they might do so today. Lord, I pray if there's somebody that just needs to rededicate their life, you know, your, your spirit has touched them, has ministered to them, that they might do that today. Lord, I pray that if you're leading somebody to join this church, that that might be the case today. Lord, help us as a church, as a people, to never forget to never forget what you've done for us. Help us to go back to the basics and to be reminded of that this day and until the day you call us home. Lord, help us not to be about rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You've given us a command and a commission. Help us to be faithful, to love you and to love others. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen.